Well, today we're wrapping up our series, Unlocking the Parables. And we certainly haven't covered all of Jesus' short stories, which he told to convey the mystery and the power of the kingdom of God. The problem in interpreting these parables is that we tend to approach them as allegories. We try to assign something to each element, whether they're representing God or a group of people. But when we turn them into allegories, we tame the message. We turn it into a philosophical truth and put it on the shelf so we pull it down when we want it, but ignore it when it gets too close to home. But if we're to grasp the power of Jesus' parables, we need to look for the surprise. We need to let the story engage us in a way that we find ourselves chewing on that meaning over and over, finding application to several aspects of our lives and the world. The special challenge of today's parable is that it seems the writer of Luke's gospel has already domesticated Jesus' original parable. He's turned it into an allegory. He tells us flat out that the parable is about being persistent in prayer. But if you look at the parable carefully, you get the sense that this allegorical approach doesn't capture the story very well. For one thing, we know that it doesn't work to assume that the judge represents God. If anything, God is the exact opposite of that judge. And to suggest that the moral of the story is that we just keep pestering God until we get what you want, that's too simplistic to reflect the deep teaching of Jesus. It's hard to not feel like there's something more at work here. So let's dig a little deeper and see if we make this interesting parable come alive. So have you ever been in the court of law or had to sit in front of a judge regarding some matter in your life? Just say yes in the Facebook comment section if that's so. It is an intimidating experience. I recall with a little PTSD when the custody of our children was being decided. I experienced how vulnerable it was to feel like I'm having my future time with my children And the financial resources that I would have to look after their future was on the line. All that was dependent upon a human being sitting behind a bench who really didn't know me or the situation that we were dealing with. Now, I would hold our court system up against any in the world. But even in the best of situations, you have an imperfect human being doing their best to review the facts that are put before them highly dependent upon the legal counsel that you can obtain. And clearly, some lawyers are better than others. And the best ones probably cost more than some of us can afford. I remember my lawyer sharing a story with me from one of his previous cases, which apparently was as complicated and hard-fought as my case was. And I remember the judge saying when that case ended, Well, I must have done my job because I made both parties angry. Well, let me tell you, Middle Eastern justice was certainly much harder to achieve, especially for a peasant woman in Palestine. Jesus is telling a story that was all too familiar. Bribery was practiced widely in Jesus' day. If a person was poor and could not pay a bribe, the expectation was that they likely will lose the case, or even more conveniently, the judge will simply refuse to hear the case in the first place. We assume in this parable the dispute that the woman has is about money, because according to Jewish law, 
that there's a dispute about land, it requires three judges to decide the case. If it's money, only one judge is required, which makes it all the more likely that this judge could be bribed. Typically, judges were chosen from the urban elite class, and so they're going to naturally be inclined to favor those who had means, who were like them. They would often rule in solidarity with their fellow brethren. Passing along favors was just the way things were done. So here we have this widow woman that has just about everything going against her. She has no man to represent her interest in a land where women had very few rights, She was up against a judge who most likely has been bribed or influenced. And as the scripture says, he does not feel obligated to be faithful to the Torah law. He does not fear God or care about people. She doesn't stand a chance. Now here's where it gets interesting. If we're looking for the surprise that holds the key to unlocking the power of this parable in our lives, and here's what we need to consider. Given what we know about widows and their lack of legal rights, it's tempting to view this poor widow as defenseless and completely lacking in power. But that's not how Jesus portrays this woman. New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine encourages us to question this stereotype. She points out that not all widows are poor, without agency, and completely dependent on the goodwill of others in Jesus' day. In the case of the widow, rabbinic law did prevent widows from inheriting in certain cases, but women could be bequeathed property. Women could also have a means of support built into the marriage covenant. Amy Jill Levine suggests that the writer of Luke tends to domesticate widows throughout his gospel, which may not reflect the original meaning that Jesus intended. His original story might have been inspired by some of the widows in our Hebrew Bible. Let's think of a few examples. What about the Bible's first widow mentioned, Tamar? Do you remember her bizarre story where she lost her husband and then her father-in-law gave her his second son, which was according to Jewish law, and he also died at the will of God when he refused to give her a son. Judah, by then, was afraid to give her his third son, starting to think that she's bad luck. So he kept putting her off until she finally took matters into her own hand. Do you remember what she did? She dressed herself as a prostitute and became pregnant by Judah himself. Tamar's child would end up in the lineage that eventually led to King David. Tamar was not a weak and powerless widow. She was clever and assertive to ensure that she got an heir. Now, what about that story of Ruth and Naomi? Two widows whose husband... Husbands had died in a foreign land, and they returned to Naomi's homeland of Bethlehem. We remember with familiarity Ruth's loyalty to Naomi when she made that famous statement, Do not press me to leave you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. But what's notable about this story for our purposes today is that Naomi sends Ruth off to gather grain in the fields of her late husband's family. And when she hears of the attention that Boaz gives to Ruth, Naomi Naomi plots to seal the deal of this relationship that will preserve both of their futures. Naomi encourages Ruth to make herself available to Boaz, if you know what I mean. 
Well, the story ends with the result of the grandchild of Naomi becoming the great-grandfather to King David. Naomi, a widow, finds a way to secure their future, which ends up furthering her own well-being and the purposes of God. Well, we don't have time to describe all the powerful widows in the Bible. I encourage you to take some time this week to look up the story of the widow of Zarephath, the story of Abigail, the widow of Nain, or how about the widow that Jesus speaks of in the temple when she gives her offering in that temple. All widows who demonstrate they are not helpless in this world. They find a way. And the widow in Jesus' parable seems to share the traits of these capable, even feisty widows who defy convention and demonstrate they have the strength and cleverness to achieve the justice they need in their lives. If anything... The widow in this parable is more than feisty. The Greek word that's used here by the judge to describe what this widow is doing to him, you'll find is is translated in the New Revised Standard Version as wear me out. But it's actually a boxing term. It, It almost seems to suggest, whether it's allegorical or literal, that the judge is afraid she's going to give him a black eye. Either way, it describes well how assertive even perhaps some would say aggressive, this woman is being. So what is the purpose of this parable? What's the message we should be taking and applying to our lives? Once again, look for the surprise. And there are a couple here. The first surprise is the widow is the one we're called to exemplify. And not many of us would choose to be in the circumstances of the widow. We don't want to be in her shoes to be the person where life is stacked against you. But isn't that often how we feel when we look at the things in the world we do not like? The injustices we see in this world seem insurmountable. And if we're a caring person who who wants to work to align the purposes of God with the ways of this world, that means we don't resign ourselves to just feeling like this is an impossible task. Jesus doesn't let us off the hook so easy if we take this parable seriously. He invites us to be like this widow and the many other widows in the Bible who found a way, who not only persisted but fought for what was right for themselves and for others. I believe the other surprise is found in the methods suggested in this parable. As well as the many other examples of the widows we have in the Bible, What we find is not stereotypical of the saintly Christian we often put in our heads. We tend to glorify the timid, passive, obedient person who never makes any waves and sees prayer as the only avenue to effect change in this world. That is not what is suggested here. When you look at Tamar, Naomi, and this widow in Jesus' story, they do whatever they have to do to get their way. They take assertive action that some might even describe as aggressive. Jesus seems to be suggesting this isn't a bad trait, especially when you're working for justice. Persistence in prayer is certainly important, as the writer of Luke suggests. But Jesus seems to suggest and say even more. Sometimes that prayer has to be translated into strategic, assertive action for the good of others, and for the good of the kingdom of God. Good morning. Welcome again to Noblesville First. 
I'm Matt Hantelman, one of the pastors here at Noblesville First, and I'm glad you're joining us for worship this morning. We've been spending time going through many different parables of Jesus, and today is one that I've read plenty of times before, but never really took the time to understand. A cursory reading of the parable could easily lead one to believe that the lesson is, if you bug God enough with your prayers, God will give you what you want. If a crotchety old judge gave in to the widow, how much more will a loving God? And if you started reading the parable at Luke chapter 18, verse 1, then it's really easy to come to this conclusion. But we have to remember two things. First, is that the chapter and verse distinctions that in Scripture didn't come about until much, much later than their original writings. Usually, it's accepted that they were done in the 16th century. They were not part of the original canonization of the Bible, even, in 300 or so. And they weren't around for the first 1,200 years after the books of the Bible were officially put together. And second, we have to remember that Jesus is typically telling a parable to illustrate a specific point. And a lot of times it's in reference to something that's already happening around him or being talked about. This means to get a better idea of what this parable is about, we should probably back up to chapter 17 and figure out why Jesus told this parable in the first place. In the second half of chapter 17, the Pharisees ask Jesus when God's kingdom was coming. Jesus' first response is that God's kingdom is already here. Just look around. But then he goes on a bit and goes on a bit of a rant about how the disciples are talking about his second coming. He starts talking about this in-between time, saying the time will come when you will long to see one of the days of the human one, Jesus, and you won't see it. And then describes the second coming as something that is unmissable. In the same way that a flash of lightning lights up the sky from one end to the other. And then there are a few comparisons made to Noah and to Lot and his wife and a few more to the time when Jesus returns. But they all have the same theme. It's about two kinds of people. People who are looking forward to the coming kingdom and those who are content here on earth in its current state. In chapter 17, he says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be during the days of the human one. People were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Eating and drinking and marrying, these are not bad things, but he's talking to an audience that knows the story of Noah. They know that the people who lived in the time of Noah were not following God. They were not looking for God and how to share God with others. Eating, drinking, and marrying here represents people just living their lives for themselves. He says the same thing of those in Sodom and remembers Lot's wife, who is said to have turned to a pillar of salt for looking back as Lot felt, fled his home. The point here is, at least the way I read it, is that we should be forward-looking. 
Just like the warnings to the Pharisees who couldn't see the kingdom of God right in front of them, Jesus warns us to both see the kingdom of God as it exists among us and the perfected kingdom that is coming when Christ returns. Seeing the kingdom around us can be hard because there's a lot wrong with the world. There are injustices piled on top of injustices. There is immense suffering and oppression. The fallen world can even feel more broken as time continues. And it's in this world that Jesus calls us to see the kingdom of God here and look forward to that perfected kingdom that is coming. And it's with this context that we hear the parable. Looking forward to the coming kingdom, taking part in the kingdom work that is being done now. And in verse 1 of chapter 18, we hear the reason even for the parable. Our need to pray continuously and not be discouraged. The parable is about a woman asking for justice over and over and over. And the judge finally capitulates. And Jesus says, won't God provide justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? And then, but when the human one comes, will he find faithfulness on earth? The justice that is coming for God's chosen people is that perfected kingdom the Pharisees were asking about. And that Jesus talked about in chapter 17. And when he returns... Will he find people repeatedly crying out for justice? Will he find people who have seen the glimpses of God's kingdom here and now and are working towards the justice that they and God desire? Or will Jesus find people simply eating and drinking and marrying? The point of the parable is given to us. That we will pray continuously and not be discouraged. Keep praying for justice. Keep fighting oppression. Keep seeking out the kingdom of God. And on that day, when Jesus returns, he will find his people faithfully building his kingdom. Who have cried for strength and deliverance and peace. And God has heard those cries. This lines up with Jesus in Matthew when he says, but the ones who endure to the end will be saved. Or in Hebrews, when the author tells us to run the race with endurance by fixing our eyes on Jesus. The persistence in the parable of the persistent widow is in cries for justice. And likely the widow knew that her cries wouldn't easily make a difference. The judge here likely would have been a Roman appointee, not a Jewish judge, based on the distinction that he neither feared God nor respected man. This meant that getting what you wanted from the judge typically took bribes or money or food. They were said to pervert justice for a plate of meat. The people even made a pun out of their name, with the official name being Don. Diane Gezeroth, which means judge of prohibitions. But instead, they would call him Diane Gazaloth, which meant robber judge. The point here is not that God is like the judge in withholding justice, but that God isn't like that. 
If a godless judge will bring justice, how much more will God bring it? And we might say, but God hasn't. Where is God with this justice then? He sure is taking his time. And to that, Peter would say in Peter 3.9, that the Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise, as some think of slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to change their heart and lives. And so, in the meantime, it falls to us to change the world into glimpses of God's kingdom coming. It falls to us to be persistent in our cries and in our work. Run the race with perseverance. Are we like the widow in the parable? Have we continued to ask for justice? Are we looking forward towards the day when the perfect kingdom will arrive by working here and now towards that justice for all? That we can join God in working towards all changing their hearts and lives. I invite you this morning to be an advocate for, for justice. Loosening chains of oppression and continuing in that work, looking forward to the day when perfect justice arrives. Amen.